0: first episode of Interversal Podcast. My name is Samuel Arman. I'm a teacher and a writer, and I research psychology. And this podcast is essentially aiming to combine psychology with various subjects. So every episode is going to be psychology plus something. And today I'm with Matthew Cassabian, and together we're going to be talking about psychology and gut health.
1: Welcome, Matt. Sam, thank you so much for having me. Really excited to talk to you about what I went through in my journey and the psychology behind it.
0: Well, I'm, I'm very happy to have you, especially uh, for our very first episode, because I think it will set a precedent. So uh, would you mind just giving us a little introduction to uh, who you are and uh, sort of your connection to gut health, why this is an issue that you can talk to yes. with uh, a level of Um, Yes.
1: So I am diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease. It's an autoimmune disease and there are two forms of it. One of them I had in the past is called ulcerative colitis, which is when my immune system attacks my colon. So I was diagnosed with this in November of 2018 and unfortunately took a very severe turn where I had multiple severe health issues such as not being able to live my life, being too weak to leave my own home, which led to multiple surgeries, such as having my whole entire colon removed and then having an ostomy bag. This went on for many years and trying to reverse the ostomy bag as well, as much as I did love having it. And now after being diagnosed from 2018, currently in 2023, I had it reversed and I now have something called the J-Pouch, which now allows me to go to the bathroom without an ostomy bag. And now I'm living my life to a fullest. And now I'm working at the hospital, NYU Langone, which is the hospital getting my life back.
0: Even that elevator pitch of a, of a description of who you are and what you've gone through is, I, I think, enough to be inspiring. Uh, but I, I know there's even more details that are, um, that that I think will resonate with people uh, across various demographics and you know life experiences so I I let's let's rewind to sort of the 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 lowest of lows in in this sort of the vicissitudes of this uh, malady you uh, I believe you you lost a tremendous amount of weight while there were other sort of big life changes occurring can you can you walk us through that just so again everyone understands exactly because when when people discuss a pathology, sometimes people just think about the, the, the physiology of it, the biology of it, and they forget all the other repercussions that are happening simultaneously. And these things interconcatenate you, there's a social aspect, there's a developmental aspect, there's obviously a work aspect. And depending on your age, there's an academic aspect. So can you, can you walk us through, I guess, one of the, the lowest of lows, and then we'll kind of dive into sort of the, the thought processes.
1: There was so much in my life that was intertwined, such as the academic and the social. When I was diagnosed, so a lot of the symptoms that come with ulcerative colitis is running to the bathroom uncontrollably and having bloody bowel movements and diarrhea. Because of this, and you're running so often uncontrollably, you have a lot of fatigue and you get very tired. So along with this, I was having multiple different things going on in my life. I was right out of college. I was trying to hold on to my social life where all my friends and I are trying to be together as much as we can before going to our adult lives. Then I was in a serious relationship at the time and the disease affected that, unfortunately. So it was trying to kind of find a balance between handling the disease and in the relationship. Then there was the academic side of it, which I just started graduate school and gained my master's of public administration. So I'm learning how to get this new course load and being in the library, studying all the time and doing papers. And a lot of this was happening at once while trying to apply for internships and learning. And a lot of it at once with this disease was it's a lot to handle. And that's where there is a big gut and mind connection because when you're trying to handle all of these things together in your life, your body responds in such a way in which the disease was the stress was getting to me at times where I'd be run to the bathroom. So it would be a relationship in those two. And it was it was difficult to handle at times. And it did progressively get worse, unfortunately, to where I, my body wasn't absorbing nutrients and from November, 2018 to, I would say, April, I dropped April, May, I would say March, I was at 111 pounds running to the bathroom. Can you walk
0: us through just that, the, the numbers again? So from November, 2018
1: to, to March of 2018, I dropped to 111, from 145 pounds to 111 pounds. And then I dropped from, and then I went up a little bit going on a holistic diet, trying to do a holistic path because I was being thrown a bunch of medications and nothing was working. So I tried a different Avenue, but then I dropped to, I went up a little bit and it helped. But then I went back to one, I went from 124 pounds in May to 101 pounds.
0: That's, that's extremely skinny. That's, 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 that's a, I mean, unbelievable is probably not the right word, but to, to, I mean, you must've been emaciated and, and very, I assume exhausted, especially, I mean, to be, to be at that, um, to be at that body weight, um, coupled with the fact that you have this malady that that's still uh, impacting you at that weight. And with the, the, Mm. the truth that your body wasn't absorbing nutrients to help combat this kind of, um, what we'll say, uh, this, this, weight loss, anything to help, you know, uh, give you sustenance, it, it must've been extremely difficult. Plus you had a whole life in the, in the meantime with grad school and work and a relationship mm-hmm. and all of these things. Um, what, what, uh, like what, what was going through your mind at some of the, I guess the, the the lowest of lows and 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 how did you kind of push yourself
1: forward so i would say at this point in my life where i was 101 pounds it was i couldn't live it was i was just in my room all the time i was basically skin and bones i was hairy all over i didn't even have enough energy to shave my own body And my clothes didn't even fit me. So my waistband couldn't even fit around my whole body. And then you're going to the bathroom in the shower, you're running, but you have to run back and forth. And it was exhausting. If you
0: had to estimate how many times you had to essentially run to the restroom, um, what would you you approximate?
1: There was one point I was going about 24, 25 times a a day. And that was because I had a bacterial infection um, from having kidney stones in a hospital in March.
0: That was what I was going to ask you, actually, yep. if this was a comorbidity. So there, there, there's a few other physical, physiological, com- or, or rather, um, um, yeah, physical comorbidities with ulcerative colitis. And yes. I guess kidney stones is, is one of them.
1: Yes. The kidneys can be affected completely because you're not absorbing specific types of proteins. And one of these proteins I was absorbing correctly. So I was getting a specific type of stone and you're so, you get so dehydrated as someone with colitis. So with your colon, not absorbing water because that's one of its main functions is absorbing water through the body. I was getting stones. So when I went to the hospital, one of the bacterial infections that you can get even from the hospital and even as someone as an inflammatory bowel disease patient is called C. Diff. And it's a type of bacteria that grows in your colon when you have very low amounts of good bacteria, especially within patients with inflammatory bowel disease. And with this in the combination with the ulcerative colitis, I was going about 25 times a day and it was very rough and you're almost, it's like you're in a fever dream. Like you don't even know what's going on anymore. You can't even enjoy anything what you're doing in the moment, especially at that weight. It's it's scary because you don't know what's going to happen.
0: And yet you're here, yep. and you're you're smiling, and you're you. I mean, you look very strong, and you're very active. I know you're uh you you you're, you participate in martial arts. So now, what's what what is the? I guess the question would be. How 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 does one bounce uh, so high from such a such a malady? And you know, if there's behavioral and
1: cognitive um, aspects, uh, please feel free. So it came from one of the darkest moments where I it was after my relationship ended, unfortunately, and I went to the bathroom and I just looked in the mirror and I didn't see me anymore. I saw it. It was like you couldn't see yourself anymore i saw someone who was frail someone who was weak someone who couldn't be independent and live anymore and it flipped a switch in me where i thought it was unfair because i was trying everything in my power to get to where i need to be back in life there was opportunities i missed in life like having an i had an internship opportunity united nations I was supposed to be an intern there and I couldn't even do it because I was so sick. And then I said, you know what? I'm coming back from this. I'm tired of this. And it flipped a switch in my head where I can't let this disease control my life anymore. I need to do more than what's expected. So I reached out to more help at a teaching hospital in the city. And I got much better care with a better doctor and a better support team with a dietitian and a social worker. Because my mental health at that point was, it needed to get stronger. And I, tr- I was very positive throughout this whole entire experience, but I did have some dark moments. And this was one of those dark moments where I was going to change it to a good, to a positive. So then I went on a much stronger medication called Remicade, and which comp- like very much suppresses your immune system. And it's an IV, it's an IV infusion. So I would get that and I would be scared because it's also the unknown because you don't know if it's going to work or not because it's about a 60, a little bit higher, 60% chance it's going to work. So the anxiety starts to creep up on you. It's like, what if this doesn't work? What's the next stage? Am I going to live? Because I'm 101 pounds. Am I going to leave my own home? I don't know. But I don't know unless I'm going to try. And I had to try and fight. So that's what I decided to do. And the Remicade worked immediately. It worked in the end of June. As soon as I got that first infusion, it started to work. And as soon as it started to work, I could do little things again, like making my bed. I could do chores. Then I added something else, like going to the gym. And even that was a mental uh, impact on my mental health. Because you would see people look at me like I was a ghost, because I was so skinny, I couldn't fit in my clothes. And that hurts your self-confidence in a way, because you don't want to be looked at that way. And I said, in my head, I'm like, screw these people looking at me. I'm going to come back even stronger. I'm going to do something that no one's ever going to expect of me and get in the best shape of my life. And I was going to prove everyone wrong that looked at me differently. And it took, it took a long time to get there because there was ups and downs along the way. But I got there years later, I'm in the best shape of my life now. It's kind of having that visual visualization of a goal in mind. And that's what I visualized because I had my sister take a picture of me when I was on my lowest weight. And I said, you're going to take this picture of me. I'm going to show people where I was and where I'm going to be from now in the best shape of my life. And it's going to show how much we can accomplish as people.
0: I love that. I love that and, and major shout out to your sister for for understanding that, you know, what might maybe superficially look like a bizarre request, hey, I'm at my worst, take a photo. Yeah. Um, and for her to have the maturity and understanding and love, of course, uh, to, to, to understand why, why that's an important factor for you. Yeah. We were speaking earlier about um, the comorbidities with uh, ulcerative colitis and I guess with many other uh, uh, syndromes and pathologies involved in IBS. I I guess um, uh, one of the biggest uh, psychopathologies or, you know, what what one might call a mental disorder uh, with um, ulcerative colitis and IBS is anxiety. And another very common one is depression. Did you, did you experience these? And, you know, we can, we can dive into them uh, and sort of how they kind of operated and, and, you know, how you trucked
1: through Mm -hmm each of them there were yes there were two big moments in my life where I felt one side of depression and one side of anxiety and this was after a majority of my surgeries one in the anxiety instance in the depression instance I had my colon removed and I was being being given I was told I had to be given an ostomy surprisingly I thought I just need more remicade but My body wasn't responding correctly. I was running to the bathroom. I was at 120 pounds, again, in the ER at the teaching hospital in September of 2019. And I was told by the IBD director, you need to have your colon removed. We're throwing everything at you. And then I got an ostomy and I loved having an ostomy, but there was another part to the surgery called Uh, for
0: those that don't know do you want to do you want to just mention what an ostomy
1: yes so an ostomy is a way that someone can go to the bathroom whether it be through urine or through stool this one was specifically called an ileostomy where the surgeon takes the part of your small intestine at the end of it and brings it to the outside of your body through your belly right next to your belly button and then over it you put what's called an ostomy bag where you put it over the small intestine and that's where it autom- you automatically go to the bathroom, and then there's an end to the bag where you empty it out into the bathroom, and you have to change it every two, three days. So that's what an ostomy. Is. And it's it's visible. It's yes, visible. Yes, and it's a big change where you don't want to live with bone because again, it affects your self confidence because your body's never going to be the same again. And one, a lot of a big thing that happened in my mind as soon as I was told this was. I'm never going to be in a relationship again. And I it, it hurts your self-confidence a lot. And I was out of a relationship for three, four months. And I said, is this the end? And then I met someone named Andrew, who was my ostomy nurse, gave me the perspective to live positively through an ostomy. And he changed my whole perspective.
0: What exactly did he, do you think, impart to you that
1: was so beneficial? His goal in life was for people to master ostomy so they can live their lives to the fullest and he imprinted that in my mind so hard where a week after I had a major life-changing surgery, I went out to my friend's housewarming in Hoboken at 113 pounds because I said, I'm going to take my life into my own hands and I'm going to live my life and go to this party because I got this ostomy to live my life. I'm not going to let it control me anymore. And I surprised all my friends there. Um, and then he imprinted that on me. And that's a big reason why I like to spread awareness of inflammatory bowel disease is through his message. And then later on, there is a surgery called a J-Pout surgery, where I have the ostomy reversed and where they take my small intestine and they basically turn it into a J within my body. So it's like a mini colon, basically. So you, they create that. And then you have like another type of ileostomy, temporarily for the J pouch to heal, and then they close up the ileostomy. So it's a two stage, just two stage surgery, basic, basically for J pouch after having your colon removed.
0: It is fascinating how major uh, physical traumas repeatedly throughout the body can uh, can occur, and the body, you know, recovers from it. It, it adapts to it, and it just—I mean—it's a very. It's a very impressive and for me, um, a kind of inspiring thing. I mean, uh, just on a quick detour, have you, have you heard of a cabbage?
1: No, I haven't.
0: And what it basically is, is for people who are having, uh, bypass surgery. So their, their arteries are clogged and you know, my father had it and, mm-hmm. you know, quite a few of his arteries were clogged. So what they have to do is they have to extract a, a singular vein. Um, there's only one vein i believe that has the 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 diameter and the capabilities to recapitulate how an artery moves and uh it's called the saphenous vein it's that giant vein down your leg uh or your legs and uh they extract that they have to cut open well first they have to drill holes uh, at your sternum basically and put you on a heart lung machine that essentially mimics your your cardiovascular system Then they cut open your chest using a variety of equipment. They open up your rib cage. They cut open the net that your heart is in called the paraambular sac. And then they, they start operating by putting the, that vein that they extract from your leg into maybe it's a triple bypass. So it's cut into three pieces and they bypass that those clogged arteries. And after these multiple physical traumas, the body recovers. And I mean, I, I remember seeing people, uh, who had just undergone it and their body swells up like a balloon because of how much inflammation, uh, is occurring simultaneously all across the body. And it's fascinating the, how much physical trauma, uh, a human, a human body can withstand and still move around and experience
1: a, a full, complete life. You're right. It's. It's kind of sometimes a work in progress because I had to have everything redone to me because it failed for the J pouch. And for, in this instance, your body adapts. It's so incredible what you're saying about it, because by doing things such as like with the heart or any type of like body part, the body can adapt to really learning how to work on its own. It figures out its own pace and it takes time, but it literally learns with the connection and it learns okay it's not going to work this way what's going on and it takes time but it learns this new way of life of really connecting with what's going on and you're able to and hopefully at some points with the medical with this new medical path we're on being able to go in so many different directions of people being able to have a quality of life worth living because that is the age we're going in because for me, for example, that's what happened with me. And it go the body goes through a lot of trauma if it didn't work, because that's lab me in my J-Pouch, unfortunately, in the beginning.
0: And just think of the decades and decades of experimentation yeah. to ensure that this, this is successful. Yeah. And, you know, so we're talking, obviously, about all the physical traumas. Uh, I think that segues quite, yeah. quite seamlessly into the multivariate psychological traumas yeah. that people incur having gone through these particular, uh, scenarios. So can you, can you, uh, let's, let's dive into that a little bit. And if you'd like to talk about the depression and the anxiety, and perhaps we can, uh, dive into how one can see these things in more, uh, I'll say helpful ways for people to conceptualize, uh, these pathologies. Yes. So, uh, but we'll, we'll start, I guess, with the, the sort of the psychological, uh, rumblings. Yeah
1: this was really my darkest moment. It was after I had the J-pound surgery done in December of 2019. I was 136 pounds at this point. The surgery took a little bit quicker than usual. It's usually around four hours. It took about two and a half for this one. I started throwing up bile, striped bile, green bile a, a day or two after the surgery. And I left the hospital about 10 pounds less, which is little normal for the course, but I didn't feel right. I didn't, I knew I wasn't a hundred percent. I was like, something's a little off. I started not eating as much as the weeks went on in the middle of January. I started getting very dehydrated. I started getting very sick again. It was hard. I couldn't, it was so hard to breathe. And about February, it got so bad to the point where I had to go to the ER. The doctors are trying to figure out what's going on with me. And turns out I was going to the bathroom so quick out of my temporary ileostomy at the time that my body couldn't absorb any nutrients at all. So I was having bile come out of my stomach, my ileostomy, and I was throwing up bile at the same time. And I was in the hospital for about- Because you
0: weren't absorbing
1: anything. Because it was going through me so quick. I had, it was like there was fire, an actual fire in my chest lighting up my throat. Then you're throwing up constantly. You can't even breathe. It was so hard because I was so dehydrated. I was passing so many kidney stones at this point. My hair's falling out of my head and I was dropping weight rapidly again. I had to go on TPN, total partial nutrition. Have you heard of that before? I had. And, I haven't. So it's basically an IV of how you get nutrition, your calories. It's through an IV. So I couldn't even eat. And I was getting an IV. And at this point, I was one day specifically, one of my friends asked me to come visit me in the hospital. And I said, this isn't a good day to come because I'm very sick. And once again, they're trying to figure out what's going on with me, if I have gallstones or or anything, if there's a, a twisted the intestine in me, if I have obstruction, I start throwing up again. And my nurse, Lily, who was a godsend, was right next to me when it happened. And I just started to break down crying because I said, I can't do this anymore. I've tried every route of trying to get better. This has been going on for over a year. I tried the medication. It didn't work. I tried taking this to my own hands with holistic diet and a coach. It didn't work. I tried stronger medication. It didn't work. I tried surgery. It didn't work. And then I tried this next surgery. It's not working. And I felt so defeated. Because after all those, when I would start to get better throughout those moments in my life, I came crashing down. Like when I started to gain weight again at one point, when the Remicade worked, came crashing down. Ballistic diet got better, crashing down. After getting the ileostomy, it crashed down. And then it happened again. I crashed down. And I was defeated. It almost
0: defeated. makes you, it almost makes you not trust positivity. I it makes you almost it. not trust any sort of uh,
1: beneficial and moment. And I felt like I deserved, I deserved the negativity because 99% of this whole journey, I was so positive. And this was one of the only times I was very negative and it got very dark to the point where I couldn't live anymore in the hospital. And I said to myself, if I die tomorrow, I'd be okay because I can't do this anymore. It's really, and it was really a dark moment in my life where I just couldn't do it anymore. And I didn't know what to do anymore. And Sam, when we're in those dark moments, like the, what do you think the depression When someone gets that type of point, what do you think can like really help someone get out of that? Because for me, I was gracefully found new help and I kind of stuck with it and found my way eventually. But this is kind of a loaded question. Like there's different multitudes of really us getting into that dark place. How do you think we can like overcome those with that type of depression?
0: so one of the the pioneers of what became known as positive psychology his name is martin seligman uh he uh in his i believe it's his most recent book it's called flourish so he identified uh, and this is not necessarily about happiness but rather subjective well-being uh, it's it's the idea of what makes someone um sort of uh not just not just resilience but thriving and he uh, outlined five different elements. It's, called, uh, and it could be abbreviated as perma P E R M a, and it is, um, positive emotions, engagement, relationships, meaning, and achievement. And it, each of these five elements, if, if you really think about it, they are the, they're the most necessitous things for just waking up the next day, even if you're in a good or great or amazing state and, uh, just to, to reiterate positive psychology, isn't about fighting depression, but rather you think of the human, we'll call it the, the scale of moods as negative 10 being at the, the highest level of suicidality or extreme depression. And then on positive 10, uh, you have a, a, we'll call it a Almost a self-actualized happiness and and filled with purpose and joy and satisfaction in life. Not that everything in life is perfect, but that your perception of things is one that uh, does not, um, we'll say, collapse you. And it's it's important to use these. One, to, everyone should could benefit from understanding these these five elements. But for people with depression, it is—it is, I think, even more essential to to understand these these things. I mean, in one of the longest studies ever done, is it's done through Harvard. It's, it's actually a beautiful study. It's I, it's a little over eighty years long. They measured the well being. They measured the well being of uh, graduates from Harvard, and they found that the the singular most impactful. Um, Uh, element for predicting uh, subjective well-being, what we can again reductively call happiness, uh, was social relationships. Were they having relationships? Did they have uh, friends, a community? Um, Were they in touch with their family? Were they uh, in an intimate relationship? These were things that predicted happiness and, or or again, more specifically, subjective well-being beyond everything and you you think of you can extrapolate this in so many different ways but of course positive emotions you know understanding the things that make you happy uh is is essential and you know one of the things i tell uh uh people when they're going through a bad time or when they are and not going through a bad time maybe just internally but maybe there's life events that are causing negativity is distress i always tell them name your three most common negative emotions. And from that starting point of identification, try and figure out ways to work with them. So uh, a few years ago, uh, when I uh, was experiencing panic disorder, uh, which lasted about eight months, um, I had to figure out a way to deal with panic, how do I deal with panic, with some people who have a um, a, a difficulty with rage, they have to find an outlet to expunge that rage, to, to, funnel it into something productive. And, you know, the, the term for this, by the way, is sublimation for people who are, uh, experiencing depression. And this is again, a problem. Some people think of depression as just extreme sadness, which is not what it is at all. It's, it's closer to an emptiness, uh, than sadness. And um, uh, conversely, mania or manic is instead of happiness, it's o- it's it's uh, over inundation, if you will, um, which is why people who are uh, manic tend to sort of we'll say break the rules of themselves. They they tend to do things outside of their own character. Be, to be more specific, beyond their own character. Um, so, m- ensuring that you have something that you can fight against when you're in depression, when you're experiencing all of these things that make you feel useless, arming yourself with an arsenal of uh, mechanisms that provide you meaning, perhaps it's religion. I mean, there's another correlation between people who uh, come out of uh, depression, and their their religiosity. And it, it, you know, and this, this might be a controversial statement, but religion can be the you know the the PhD that you're working on that is of course part of the anxiety you're experiencing perhaps um, or it can be the uh, particular movie franchise that y- you are so excited about uh, every episode or film or whatever it is so m- meaning can obviously be established in a multitude of ways um, and I think one of the, one of the best, um, books I've ever read on psychology. Let's see, it's right, hopefully behind me. I I, I give my books away too often. Uh, it's it's called *Man's Search for Meaning*. Have you heard of it? I
1: haven't heard of it.
0: So it's by it's by Viktor Frankl, um, who is a Holocaust survivor, and he was he was a psychologist prior uh, to um, being sent to a concentration camp, and he has such a beautiful statement. Um, he said, uh, in some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds meaning, such as the meaning of a sacrifice. And it is, it, it, it's such a, if anyone said it, of course, it would, it would sound profound, but for someone to have gone through uh, the Holocaust and, and lost everyone they loved um, and to develop a whole form of therapy for it is is very telling and you know, his form of therapy is, is considered a, a, a it's, it became known as logo therapy or, or therapy through meaning. And it, it's extremely important and people can develop meaning from a variety of things, whether you start to fall in love with poetry, and now you want to be a published author, or you see someone go on a weight loss journey or a weight gain journey and you're you're inspired maybe even a little competitive uh that that could be the thing that provides you meaning but it's important to understand it's not that you're not suffering anymore but rather your suffering now has the context a broader context that makes it something that doesn't erase you that doesn't deteriorate who you are and that's that's so essential because that creates that integrity and i mean integrity from like a almost a geologic perspective. It's that that core nucleus of who you are, that is maybe shakable a little bit, but it will not fracture. Um, And, you know, he said he he wrote Man's Search for Meaning in 1946, and about 2,300 years prior, uh, Aristotle wrote, suffering becomes beautiful when anyone bears great calamities with cheerfulness, not through insensibility, but through greatness of mind. And it's, it's that same idea, we've known this for a while, that if, if the world is crumbling, or if it, it, you are ex, ex, you're walking through a, we'll call it a metaphoric earthquake, as long as you have these mechanisms to ground yourselves or keep yourself buoyant during a flood, I'm just cycling through metaphors right now, uh, then you'll be, you have a greater likelihood of emerging on the other side and much more powerful for having gone through those particular struggles
1: that everything you just said is pretty much how I got through that episode or just in general, the darkest moments of my life. What I told myself, I wanted to turn this to a positive and I wanted to have the meaning of showing others what I went through and to spreading awareness of this disease, showing people you can live life with an ostomy. You can live life with this disease and still have a great time and still enjoy life to the fullest. And then the other big piece of it was the means and the relationships was so was pretty much my main was one of my pillars. I talk about these pillars in my life is how I got through this, this whole entire phase of this whole entire chapter. What the biggest one was my family and friends, my family, my mother, my dad, my sister, my brother, they all helped me so much, my sister's boyfriend. They were there for me every step of the way. My best friends from college and out of college, they were there for me every single step of the way, supporting me, being there for me, asking me how I was doing, visiting me while I was home. David visited me while I was at my house and because I was too sick. You almost me, get overwhelmed, right? Yeah, it was, over, it was in, the, in a right. good way. But it was it's a lot at times because it's like you you feel the love. You really feel that love and it makes you have that meaning. When I came back home from that from that uh that moment from having those complications, this is February twenty twenty at this point, right before COVID hit. It was a week before COVID hit. I got a surprise visit from my friends on my birthday, the day after my birthday. They all just surprised entered my room and I was hundred five pounds at this point. I was like, what are you guys doing here? They're like, we're here for your birthday. We're here to surprise you. We're here to hang out with you. And they were all there. And it makes you feel so loved after not having that meeting. And they helped fill that void so much. And nothing replaced. I know
0: some people who, who occasionally uh, react, at least temporarily, uh, negatively to that. And if you if you think about it, you can actually kind of trace it a little bit. Mm. Um, I think all, almost all human behaviors we can, you can trace as long as you're using enough lenses. Yeah. Um, and it, the feeling of being overwhelmed with people uh, considering you as worthy to visit, it, it, it's so rooted in you feeling like your worth is not equivalent, is inferior to the worth they're bestowing upon you mm-hmm. for having visited. Yeah. And it gives you this, It's not necessarily imposter syndrome, because you're not necessarily actively being um, in a position, but you do feel inadequate to the magnitude of love you're receiving Mm -hmm. or care you're receiving. And it's interesting. And I I just want to remind anyone who has ever felt that way, um, people are making their decisions they're making their decision to come visit you, they're making their decision to call you, they're making their decision to reach out to you to trust you, to even speak to you, and uh, maybe even send you a, a message every now and then. So instead of thinking, you know, all oh, this person feels bad for me, or or like, or, or even like, oh, I'm not worth discussing, or I'm not worth visiting. Remember that they had made that decision, whatever the equation in their mind was, may- maybe some Portion of it is uh, sympathy. Maybe it's empathy. Maybe they had gone through something distantly similar, and they know what that feeling is like and how important that one text can be. Um, so I just want to remind people to when when you're overwhelmed by uh, positivity and you're getting that sense of I don't des- I don't deserve all this goodness, I mean, you 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 likely do because other people coming to visit you is that
1: appraisal yeah you're when you just mentioned it actually relates to the most anxious time i had on my journey in that moment because with my friends they i'll speak about a little bit later but you know they were all living their lives they were all doing that while i was sick and when they were there to be there with me it was it felt great because, you know, one of my best friends was in law school at the time. He's studying so much. he's His time is devoted to doing other things. And as well as my other friends, they were starting businesses or they were just getting their foot in the ground, starting work and full-time jobs, moving out. They still showed that love and care by coming to visit me or be there for me. And it makes you feel so appreciated. And that's something that you really need when you go through those times because when you're alone for because when you're that sick you're you're very alone you know you're i was only with my family at the time, the and my mom was an angel god sent just being there for me helping me. like i couldn't even go out downstairs to get food she'd bring up my meals and she'd be the only person or my brother or my sister that i would see but it's good to feel appreciated outside of that and that's what my friends gave me and that was a kind of like a pill that was a very the strongest pillar of all of them. And that's always something that I always appreciate is that friendships is something very important to me.
0: Before you dive into the, the anxiety part, uh, you know, I, I mentioned the positivity of having relationships, you know, this might be obvious for some people, but there's obviously a negativity associated with not having relationships. And this doesn't have to do with introversion or extroversion, of course, the magnitude or the quantity, uh, of the relationships, and the quality of relationships uh, change based on uh, your introversion or extroversion. For some people who are introverted, a a calmer, singular discussion with people uh, with a person is 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 adequate. And for someone who is an extrovert, you know they might be at a cafe with one person, but they want to talk to everyone. And you know they the, the best way to conceptualize introversion and extroversion is how do you recharge with extroverts, they recharge through social interactions and generally are depleted in in more individual or or isolated environments Mm -hmm. and people who are introverted, they get exhausted in large, large groups uh, in in very social settings. But um, that doesn't mean that they ought to be alone all the time because we are not constructed that way. And I mean, we've actually seen it from people who um, have been in solitary confinement there, uh, for people who have been imprisoned, being in solitary confinement, uh, has been correlated to a, a, I forgot the exact number, but uh, it was, I think I, if I'm not mistaken, it was more than three times higher chance of suicidality just for, just for, uh, experiencing solitary confinement. And this is different, of course, from those who choose to isolate in the woods for a week, because that's on your own terms. Of course, unpredictability is an exacerbator of any emotion. And when you're in a, 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 prison with no food, it's, it's a hard floor. Um, and it's not a large room and you're just by yourself ex- experiencing life moving forward while you're stagnant, uh, is a, it, it's just a, a massive detriment on your health
1: it shows you how it shows you just how important and necessary these relationships are, whether introvert or extrovert. I think that by, you know, do you think it's necessary for someone to, for an introvert to have those relationships, even though they spend those times alone? Because I do know some people that really don't really like that interaction, but I feel like it's so necessary to have that because it it's such a powerful meaning in people and i know our alone time i everyone needs alone time you know but i feel like too much alone time isn't good but can people strive off of that do you think and be still be successful do you think
0: so there's this concept of uh, essentially integration the multiple facets of your your personality of your experiences of your day that are sort of a loose maybe not loosely but they're they're in associate an associated fuzz When you have a conversation with someone, you tend to integrate things because you take that the abstractions of your ideas. And when you articulate them, you obviously have to put them in some sort of sequence of sounds and words and ideas that will be able to transcend from your experience to the experience of the recipient. Right. Okay. This is why therapy or why friendship can be a therapeutic device, of course, because you have to actually think about how you would articulate something and that helps you master it. Yeah. And this is the very obvious secret that, you know, I think should be more frequently uh, or or, or more commonly understood. Um, Being alone allows you to integrate as well, but you integrate all these experiences that you had how could you possibly integrate all these different social experiences when you haven't had a moment to step out of them and to uh sort of have that moment where you actively put the picture together yeah. of what what you've just experienced what you've just learned what you've just unlearned whatever it is or the emotions that you you rode in those in those moments and of course again an introvert would be you know very sensitive to that of course but uh both can benefit from isolation, um, as, as long as it's self-directed isolation, of course. And uh, both necessitates, uh, human interaction, very much so. Yeah.
1: It, we we we're, we don't develop properly without having uh, interactions. Yeah, I I agree. I agree a hundred percent. Because no matter the experiences, whether them be positive or negative in our lives, like this one was a negative, obviously, but you learn from it and you can turn it into a positive in a way and learn things about yourself that you never knew before. Like I didn't know, like I, you know, when I was in high school, I was such a skinny guy. I was 111 pounds normally. Like, and that was a normal weight for me. And I was really skinny, but I always imagined myself. What if I was like a lot stronger? Like what if I was like, like went to the gym and started like working out and had more muscle. And I started to do that as I went to high school, and like of high school and college. And I did get muscle, but to take it a step further, where I got into the best shape of my life, I never thought that would be possible if I didn't, if I wasn't so determined and put my mind to it. From the experience that I had, it was the necessary motivation and determination. So it teaches you you can go above and beyond and push past your limits with appropriate help. It just teaches you that you're more capable of than what you already think of yourself and teach you to believe in yourself. Also, I think that's so, so vital.
0: Right. I mean, that's, that's part of that post-traumatic growth. Yep. The, the idea. So what, one of the, I think one of the best ways to understand the human mind, um, is to think of it as an ocean. Um, and the surface of the waves, this is how I've, or I've conceptualized this Uh, I conceptualized this in 2014, so almost 10 years ago. Um, so you picture the surface of the waves, you're looking down, it's an aerial view at the ocean. Okay. When you're looking down at the ocean, the waves on the very top, that is your immediate thoughts. Those are the thoughts that you have direct access to. Like right now you're thinking about the words I'm saying, maybe you're thinking about, uh, how, how you, uh, are reacting to some of these uh these ideas maybe you're thinking of the books behind me or that we're both wearing green uh in either case these are the these are the superficial meaning on the surface thoughts then you plunge uh into these waves and the lower you go the more subconscious it is and of course there's there's levels of the subconscious meaning it's it is it is currently not a conscious thought now if i say a particular thing if i mention breaking bad your the waves start to ripple a little bit and new ideas are coming up because you have these these connections these connections are called associations okay they are the closeness or the proximity between these patterns of waves so um mozart is connected to perhaps classical music is connected to music is connected to uh rock is connected and these things sort of ripple out right trauma is in in my, my sort of conceptualization, trauma is where something violates the balance of that ocean so much so that the associations have, that, that many associations have become untethered. They have become detached. They have, it has broken the rules of the, of your mental ocean. And the negativity of that is, is obviously um apparent, you are in a uncontrolled state. You're in a state where there's there's no sense of meaning uh and meaning in a in a less in a spiritual way in the way in which we were discussing it, but meaning as in definitions of of what what are boundaries, what 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 is and what isn't. Um, and you know when that happens, of course, much of this informs your identity. So your self identity is rippled. Uh, and that's that's very problematic, of course and you know with that you you might lose the integrity that that even keeps you alive so it is the 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 negativities of trauma are immediately apparent but with trauma you also because of that rippling because of that fissure of your self-identity because of the fact that these associations are now loosened you have the potential to regrow from there, and how you regrow uh, is obviously a entirely individualized process. Um, for uh, it was about thirty years ago, uh, uh, Richard Tedeschi and Lawrence Calhoun made the Post Traumatic Growth Inventory, where they described five different elements um, in in tracking how that growth happens, and it really is fascinating because a lot of it is about Consciously re-tethering yourself, consciously reintegrating, and with a what we'll call it like a a, a a new type of malleability in that because those fractures have occurred, there is a new area to understand things, including and as fundamental as we can get, your own mortality. Understanding your own mortality is is something that is an extremely painful experience for people. And when you're on the other side of that and you've fit, you've gone as close to death as possible and you've experienced that uh, in your twenties or your thirties or in your teens, it it creates a fundamental difference in your every second of being alive. And how you how you come about that is part of that post-traumatic growth. Again, it's, 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 a. It, it might be a, a, a strange thing to see trauma as, uh, potentially loaded as, as, uh, sorry, as, as potentially filled with, um, positives. Um, but, it, but it does need to be understood that with that sort of, um, collapsing, there is the opportunity for new things to be built.
1: Yes. It structures, if you will. It it ripples you to the core. It changes you as a person. I would never be who I am today if it wasn't through what I went through. I never would have known what I was capable of, or beyond this career path working in healthcare, I wouldn't be spreading awareness and helping other people if it wasn't what I went through. It could have been I could have had a negative outlook on this. And because it changes you so much. You, some people handle it differently. And I'm not saying that everyone's going to handle trauma like mine the way I am. Everyone's going to look at it differently. That's the most important thing is I think that having a better outlook on this, on a traumatic event like this, can benefit you more. I'm not saying to, I'm not trying to have toxic positivity come out, but I'm saying to kind of learn from it and grow from it is where it could benefit you. Not saying this is the, not saying that I'm so glad this happened to be, but I'm glad I grew from it so much.
0: Yeah. Instead of seeing it as they instead of seeing it as, oh, you know, they're, they're traumatized, they're broken. You can more actively think, you know, they're, they're, you know, they had experienced trauma and they're rebuilding because that, that puts the power into their hands. So in in that sort of capacity, you're, you're almost, um, you're almost expecting the outcome uh, to be uh, eventually positive for them relatively from where they are in in that moment. There's a, there's a really good book. Um, It has one of the best titles I've ever, ever read. Uh, It's by Dr. Oliver Sacks. It's called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Have you heard of this book? No, I
1: haven't heard of this one
0: beautiful book. Um, so, uh, instead of calling disorders as disorders or, um, uh, disabilities, e- e- even worse, um, because again, some it, it, well, I'll, I'll explain, but he calls them, he, he, categorizes them in, in different ways. So he'll call something like synesthesia, the blending of senses where you can, uh, see taste or smell color. Um, not that you can, you do you're, you're in that perpetual state. He called that, uh, a a transfer or a transport rather. So he has like losses, excesses, transports. When you use these kind of terminologies, it is so much more favorable to the individual. And of course, stigma is a huge part of all of this, but if you want someone to, uh, arise from the other side of depression or their battling of OCD or their battling of any sort of, um, uh, difficulty that they're enduring, it would be a smarter idea to be sort of reconceptualizing, uh, how, how these maladies, how these challenges, how these, uh, uh, experiences are seen and yours very much i think falls under that category
1: do you think that every like a lot of people that go through these traumatic experiences like for example I'd like that do you think that they should have that type of attitude that i'm having do you think that they would do you think that they should for example if someone were to go through a disease like i did and i have a more positive attitude on it um, i know people that don't like when they live with an ostomy, they hate it, which is understandable because not a lot of people can accept an ostomy because it's it's hard. It's a total different life change. It's a bag of stool on your body. So not a lot of people can accept that and they feel ashamed. Now, do you think that in their psychology, do you think that they could have, not only change their perception to a more positive one, but do you think they have the, that ability and do you think that they should? because their life would benefit more but not i feel like not everybody could it's like you can't like tell someone like look at this better you know because not everyone has that same perspective as me uh,
0: short answer is yes i mean i, I do think uh, and sh- a blanket yes so do people have the ability to see things more positively yes do people or should people yes uh, how they go about it is entirely unique process uh, there's this book by uh, Dr. Robert Sapolsky called "Behave." It's actually right over my shoulder, right that. there. Uh, and the book the book begins with, <clears throat> if I'm not mistaken, it begins with Dr. Robert Sapolsky uh, sort of ninjaing into a bunker, and he finds Adolf Hitler, takes a gun out, and blows Hitler's brains out. Oh, oh. Uh, and then it's it basically stops, and it says, "Well, what led to this decision?" And the book is a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, dive into behavior, and it looks at every chapter is written in a sort of uh, reverse chronological order. So, when you pull the trigger, or again in the in the 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 anecdote of him killing Hitler. There's that milliseconds. Those are milliseconds and seconds. Those are neurotransmitters. So chapter one will be seconds before. Chapter two will be minutes or hours before, and that'll look at the hormones. Uh, The next chapter will be weeks or months before, years before, and that'll look at the social influences. Then it'll say like uh, centuries before, and that'll look at the evolutionary processes that led to this kind of decision of 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 all these things, of of why use a gun, of why go to Hitler, why, you know, that's an obvious one, of course. Um, and it's, it's really fascinating because it, it reminds you that there's so many different ways in which you can analyze a single behavior and to look at only one is missing far more than what you're getting. And can people be positive in, in the grand majority of life's tribulations? Yes, with absolute certainty they can, but how they manifest that positivity is based on so many different factors, including cultural factors, by the way, in, in, um, for example, uh, someone who is widowed in a society, uh, where the, where the, 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 the mother is very dependent on the father. Uh, or the the wife is very dependent on the husband might be might manifest quite differently than in a society where men and women are both seen as potential breadwinners, or in a society that very much values having lots of children someone a, a woman who finds out that she 's barren might be a deeply deeply um, self erasing reality whereas someone who is you know thinks about having a family and and would like to have a child um, but and then finds out that they can't might react less negatively and you know might go towards adoption or try and think of other sort of facets so again the the way in which we experience life is rooted in so many different individual components by themselves. And then they interconcatenate, they influence each other. So you have obviously the genetic aspect of it, uh, which is by itself, um, extremely impactful. Then you have the prenatal development. Then you have the development, which all of your schemas or mental maps of the world are, are developed at that time, including language and language isn't just the sounds you utter to, you know, express things, but rather what those expressions mean what what they're surrounded by what the word love means what the word wrath means or survive um if if you're from a, a ethnicity where your people have almost been wiped out survive might have a very very complex familial anecdotal cultural musical definition whereas if you're from a culture that or uh, ethnicity that never experienced such a thing you might not have such a such a not that you might you definitely don't have that aspect so it it, it, you know in order to answer any sort of question about uh, how people can do things of course you have to align certain certain um uh perspectives simultaneously but there are general patterns there are general uh predictors like having um social support. So if you, if you, if you know, if you have any sort of idea that you are slipping, that you are, that you are descending into, uh, increased anxiety or descending into the, um, just the, that, that quicksand of depression, being aware that finding some sort of piece of meaning while you're still, uh, you know, above the surface enough, to have the activity to start, you know, full, uh, preparing your life in such a way that when, when the wave hits, you are as, as fortified as possible. These are things that people can absolutely do. And so we do these things naturally I and mean, we're, we're built to survive. So, um, we, we do seek enjoyment. We do of course seek pleasure as long as we're not negotiating with our health too much in the process of that, that pleasure. Um, We do, uh, seek friendships of course, and, and, and not just novel friendships, but to ensure that our current friendships are healthy. Um, so we do these things already, but to be mindful that if life is about to get very difficult and and it doesn't have to be like a natural disaster, it could be that you're about to start grad school and it is an extremely difficult, um, it's gonna be an extremely difficult program or that you're about to start a job that you're not very excited for, but it's something that you kind of have to do. Arming yourself with these kind of things would be the smartest decision that you could possibly make. And it doesn't make it so the, you, you don't gain the the strength from having endured through something. But what it does do is in sh- help ensure that you don't sink so low as to not bounce back, which is, that's what resilience is. It's the very word resilience comes from rebounding upwards. So without those mechanisms, without those, um, decisions beforehand, it'll be very difficult for you to bounce back, especially if you're so busy with your difficulties, uh, and your challenges and your burdens that you can't actively seek that new form of meaning or that, that old form of meaning or that friendship or what positive emotions you want to, um, reinforce in your life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 so important to have that background, to have those experiences because it shapes us so much. Because I was blessed to have this positivity in this in my friends that helped show me the way, that helped shape me who I am. Yeah,
0: temperament. Your temperament is definitely a part of it, and that's that's I mean that's that's natural. That's that's uh, innate. That's something that's uh, uh, from you, but. People can push against that. Yeah. So the people around you maybe will will say, Matt, why are you so like positive all the time? No, like that sucks. You didn't do a good job. And they reinforce this negativity. So Mm -hmm. you're not comfortable being your positive self. And if you don't use something, it atrophies. And these traits like optimism or pessimism or extroversion or introversion, they can atrophy too. Someone who's extroverted but is constantly being bullied and teased—that that that affects them just this, just as terribly, yeah. in a different way than an introvert. But it still impacts them terribly, especially because they are seeking that that relationship.
1: And I think by if you know, because I've had people ask me that those questions before. I've had many people ask me these questions where. Like why are you so positive and try to like damper upon my experiences in a negative way. And I think it's so important you have to separate yourself from those people because it could really impact the growth that you've achieved. Like if you've achieved so much in your mental state, it could dampen upon it. Like I've had people at like tell me certain things I thought that were kind of offensive. Like I had, when I was gaining my weight back, I was 121 pounds after I had my first surgery, my colon removed. It was the first time I went out on Halloween and I had someone come up to me at the bar and say like, oh, like, I, I said my weight and they're like, oh, like, I I wish I was your weight. And I was like, <laughs> "What? A, whatever. A, <laughs> I'm like, no, you don't. What a ridiculous. <laughs> I'm like, no, you don't. And then someone What a ridiculous I, thing to say. And then I had someone say to me like, oh, I wish I was 101 pounds. And I was like, no, you don't you do not, and that's like where I think, like, a lack of perspective. You
0: were, you were, I'm assuming, yeah, of course. You were at a bar probably where people were yep. uh drinking alcohol, and when you drink alcohol, you don't really think of consequences. yeah, your ability to think of consequences has diminished yeah. greatly. And,
1: uh, and even sober so, people have said this yeah. to me too, where I'm like, and I remember, I'm like, no, that's, you don't, like, you can't, and that's where like you reinforce yourself with the experience that you had and like you reinforce like by saying like how what type of an impact it was but say in a way where you can like teach someone I think it's a good teaching opportunity to kind of say like this is kind of what happened to me so they have a better perspective because I think a lot of the times it's a but language. that
0: can be exhausting it is exhausting but that can be exhausting if yeah. you're doing it if you're doing it if everyone around you is misinterpreting yeah, and, and calling you, uh, a pioneer weight loss expert. Uh, yeah. and you, that's not with, you know, I mean, we don't just want to be appreciated as human beings. Yeah. We, we want to be appreciated for what we want to be appreciated mm-hmm. for. It's a very, very important distinction. Yes. Just, you know, if, if you want to prove that, you know, you have the knowledge of a particular subject and everyone's just like, Oh, they're smart. It, that doesn't, that doesn't, Achieve the same result yeah. as someone recognizing your uh, ability and whatever it is that you're you're trying to yeah. achieve in. And, um, and there's a there's a term for this, by the way, uh, in habit formation. Um, there's, there's a few people who have written about habit. And when you said remove the people in your life that are essentially causing those kind of negativities, uh, there's there's or who are questioning the things that you're using to push forward. Um, uh, and it's removing frictions, it's creating a frictionless environment. So when you're creating a new habit, the friction would be something that makes it difficult to sort of habituate. So for example, if someone who is, um, trying to, uh, uh, no longer drink alcohol, for example, they're trying to abstain from alcohol instead of driving home past that bar where they throw a few back with their friends. Instead, they take another route. Now the bar passing by and the many associations and their mind suddenly activating and oh no, I could really use a drink. Oh man, I wonder if that, if that friend, the bartender, like all these different ideas in your head, now your brain, part of your brain is already drinking. It's already doing it. So removing those, uh, those we'll call them those triggers or those to, to use a less um, redefined word because trigger now means a few things let fewer cues, fewer cues to push that kind of uh uh habit. It is analogous to what you're describing, fewer cues to negate the multivarious positive mechanisms you're using to propel forwards through this um very difficult um negative momentum which in your case was an actual uh
1: uh, uh pathology an
0: actual sickness
1: yeah it's you, you, you can't it's hard to deal with that at times, and that's what I've kind of learned it where it if you go along with a quote that I really after I went through my journey that's has become one of my favorite quotes now is "Our attitude towards life determines life's attitude towards us." I, oh, beautiful. I, yeah, it was, it was from someone that told me a friend of mine and it became my favorite quote because I have to have, I chose to have a positive outlook and because I can learn because like I said before, I learned from it and I grew from it, but it can also be a really good teaching moment in which per, it makes me feel good about myself. I, in my life, felt really good about, feel really good about giving my knowledge about what I've learned. And I think that could be really good for others because I see what it can do. And I chose to have this attitude of which teaching and showing others my life of what it's like to have a J pouch without a colon. And It provides this good. Like I've gotten messages from other people and it shows a positive outlook. They're starting to say, thank you for showing me this. My son's getting a J pouch. There's someone says to me, thank, Hey, thank you for showing this video. I felt insecure about, about having an ostomy bag. And it just shows like, because of having this positive attitude, it's showing a positive result and that positive result. Is showing a better impact on other people and their mental health as well. So it's kind of spreading. It's like it's it's like a spread of goodness, and that's where I, it shows. It promotes this happiness, and it. it I wouldn't say happiness actually, hope, and I think that hope is so important for those who went through what I went through because it shows you're gonna be okay. And it can help other people's psychology and mental health as well. I think that's so vital. And so, but if you you, but if you come across other negative people, and and it goes against your that wave, it's not going to help you. So that's why you need to like learn from others and be surrounded by those who are going to support you and be there for you. Those were the people that were. And of course, having
0: that pushback every now and then, having that pushback every now and then forces you to. And kind of reconsider exactly how your positive mechanisms are working. Yes. But, but over overall, if you're surrounded by people who are weighing down the very things you're using to survive and to push forward, that's where things become, uh, we'll call it socially pathological. Yes. You should, you should excise, excise those people from your
1: life. Yeah. And it doesn't happen. It's, it's happened so rare. I'm not saying I get it. Often, all, it's extremely rare if I get a type of comment like that. It's only happened like a few times and it's not bad, but it's good to teach with those moments and you teach and you learn, and that's the best thing to do.
0: This is exactly what you're doing though. You're, you're, you're spreading positivity and perhaps more important than positivity than blind positivity, just insight, yeah. insight that this is like, Hey, I, I had got that nightmare you're about to walk into. I'm on the other side of that. And here's what worked for me. Here's what seemed like it was going to work, but it did not work.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Because, you know, even though I didn't, I didn't feel a lot of, there were, there were times I did feel, you know, I did feel anxious, at, like very rare, but it was towards more afterwards. But I think throughout this whole journey, as long as I can give back, that's what matters to me. And so far it's working, which is I'm very happy about. And as long as people get, you know, as long as you help someone and put a smile on someone's face and you tell someone's gonna be okay after seeing someone who's going through what I went through, that's all that matters to me at the end. That of the it's thing. gonna be okay. That we up, that it will be okay. That's gonna be okay. The right if you have the right care and the right support system, you will be okay.
0: Matt, thank you, thank you so much for this. Sam, thank you. For uh, before, oh, my pleasure. Before before I let you go, uh, can you tell the listeners how to find you?
1: You can find me on Instagram um, and on TikTok with my uh, handle Maddie Bowels on both TikTok and Instagram. So you can find me there. You can find my content and see how we're living life with no colon. We're still rolling. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> I didn't come up with it. Oh my God. That's it. phenomenal. Did not come up with it at all. Can't I'm
0: going to tell everyone you did.
1: Oh, uh, please. <laughs> please do it. <laughs> Always
0: love it. Matt, again, again, thank you so much. And uh, thank you everyone for for listening. Again, this is Interversal. This is our very first podcast. Um, and uh, each episode is going to be using... Um, psychology to look at another field or to look at another topic. So it'll always be psychology and something. And Matthew, once again, thank you for making our first episode, psychology and gut health.
1: Thank you, Sam. Appreciate it as always. Take it easy.